You know, the idea that the world is just so convenient for everyone in the business world that you know, doing what's kind of maximally good from the perspective of profit making will just always be consistent with you know, kind of doing their part from a moral perspective uh, to kind of address the threat of climate change. This seems so improbable that um, there's just no good reason to believe it, right? I mean, there's no evidence that tends to be kind of presented for this. It's generally kind of highly speculative. Welcome to The Ripple Effect, the podcast that takes you on a journey through the minds of work and faculty. I'm your host, Dan Loney, and in each episode, we'll be diving deep into the inspiration behind the groundbreaking research that Wharton professors have conducted and exploring how their findings resonate with the world today. We'll be covering a diverse range of topics, bringing you the latest insights and knowledge that you can apply to your life and to work. So get ready to dive into new ideas with The Ripple Effect. Can businesses actually make more money by going green? It's a question that's been asked time and time again, with many optimistic about the potential for profits in sustainable practices. But what if that's not the case? What if going green actually hurts a company's bottom line? In this episode, we'll be discussing these complex questions with our guest, Brian Berkey, an expert in business and environmental ethics. We'll be exploring the potential benefits and challenges of sustainable practices for businesses, as well as digging into ethical considerations of prioritizing profits over the future of our planet. As we ponder the issue of climate change, it's also impossible to ignore the fact that the decisions we make today will have a profound impact on future generations. It's a weighty responsibility and it raises an important question. Does the knowledge that our children and grandchildren will be the ones most affected by the climate crisis change the way we approach the problem in the first place? As Brian explains, the stakes are just too high to continue on our current path. The decisions we make today will determine whether our future generations inherit a world that is ravaged by climate change or one that is still livable. So let's listen to what Brian has to say about the kinds of changes we need to make to ensure a better future for all. Let me start, I guess, just where your interest around the issue of ethics and climate change really kind of formulated. Yeah, so I wrote my dissertation, um, finished all the way back in, in 2012, on our obligations to the global poor. Uh, that was kind of the case that kind of focused my, my uh, kind of theorizing. Um, and one of the issues that I discussed uh, is kind of how demanding our obligations can be. There's kind of a debate in, in moral philosophy about what we call the demandingness of morality, how much relatively well-off people are obligated to sacrifice in order to make the world a better place, relieve suffering, help people who are unjustly disadvantaged, and so on. Uh, and similar issues arise, of course, uh, with respect to climate change. Uh, although there, um, the challenge is that the main kind of moral obligation that it seems like we have is to um, protect environmental conditions for future generations, for people who don't already exist. Uh, and there are a lot of kind of interesting philosophical puzzles about how we can have obligations to future people who don't yet exist, uh, what the nature of those obligations might be, might be uh, how we can explain them. Uh, and then our answers to these questions have implications for uh, 
what and exactly how much we ought to do in the face of the threat of climate change. Uh, so that was uh, a set of issues that I kind of took up after finishing my dissertation uh, when I was in my first uh, postdoctoral position. How much do you think the question of ethics around climate change comes up in a lot of the conversation today? I think, you know, you get a lot about the data and, and where we need to go, but I'm wondering if the ethics side of it and the obligations, as you said, the moral obligations of companies and people kind of in this process comes up enough. So I don't think it comes up enough. I think there's a divide. I think uh, there are kind of people who have certain kinds of approaches to thinking about the challenge of climate change that are such that, in effect, they really are kind of generally talking about ethics, even if they're not kind of talking about it the way that, you know, people like me who are trained in moral philosophy talk about it, right? But they're thinking about, uh, you know, am I required to, uh, you know, drive less and live in a smaller home and fly less and, uh, you know, eat a vegan diet and, you know, do all of the kinds of things that we as individuals can do to reduce our contributions to climate change. Uh, they're also thinking about things like what sort of uh, public policies we ought to have, what sort of, you know, regulations we ought to have and thinking about it in the way that's characteristic of, um, ethical reasoning, right? They're thinking about, you know, what does justice require uh, that we do for future generations and so on. Um, in other circles, discussions of ethics seem to me to happen much less, right? Uh, the goal that others have in kind of thinking about how we ought to approach climate change seems to be like trying to figure out kind of technical solutions or you know, kind of win-win solutions, ways that, you know, we might be able to kind of make progress on dealing with climate change without any of the relevant uh, actors having to really sacrifice anything, right? Uh, and to the extent that it's possible to deal with climate change in this kind of way, um, you know, we should kind of take advantage of, of those opportunities. But the worry that I have about this is that, um, it may not be possible to do that. And, you know, we're kind of uh, now especially short on time, right? We haven't done nearly enough for, uh, you know, 30 plus years. Uh, and so limiting our discussions to, you know, something like the question of, uh, is there a way that we can, you know, reduce our emissions enough to keep warming under two degrees or under 1.5 degrees without, you know, having to sacrifice anything in the way of our current lifestyles or corporate profits or uh, other kinds of things that might, in fact, actually need to be kind of traded off against the aim of addressing climate change in a serious way. I think it's kind of dangerous to kind of approach the issue only in that way. So then potentially, are we kind of in a pivot moment, do you think, at this time, in terms of what's occurred in the past where we are at the moment, and obviously, as you said, where we need to go in a relatively short time, that, that this is the time where action uh, is, is very important to move forward. I mean, action is certainly important at this point. Uh, we, we've done far too little for a very long time uh, you know, since we've known about the threat um, that climate change poses. Uh, and we really are running out of time, right? Uh, the experts now seem to think that, uh, you know, we basically have less than 10 years uh, at this point to bring about a pretty radical shift in emissions trajectories. Uh, 
I mean, if we're going to reach the goal of limiting warming to 1.5 degrees, uh, the most recent estimates suggest that we need to get to net zero emissions globally by 2050. Um, and we need to make significant reductions by 2030. Um, that requires a great deal of change in a very short amount of time. Uh, and given that what we've seen over the past 30 plus years is relatively little progress, um, you know, the, the sort of shift that is required um, is, you know, to some extent kind of hard to get our minds around, right? Um, I mean, it would, it would be um, quite transformational uh, in ways that it's not obvious that we're prepared for. You've talked uh, in other interviews and other papers, uh, I remember, about a climate, ev- a climate imperative uh, for business. Take us through what that is and, and how you think this will factor in. Yeah, so um, I've got a, a paper that uh, my colleague Eric Ortz and I have been working on in which we argue that approaches to business decision-making that have kind of, have kind of become standard you know, over the last you know, say 50 years or so that involve focusing at least primarily, if not exclusively on uh, increasing profits kind of within the limits of the law has to be rejected in a pretty significant way uh, in the face of, of the threat of climate change. Uh, the climate imperative idea is that whatever approach to business decision-making we endorse, it has to be consistent with a kind of serious commitment to do what's necessary uh, kind of within business practices to sufficiently address the climate threat. Uh, And so the imperative says that uh, each business decision maker, say, you know, an executive of a corporation uh, is obligated to take the threat of climate change into account in their decision making in a way that leads them to ensure that their firm's emissions are kind of no higher than is compatible with basically doing their fair share, right? Uh, kind of on the assumption that everyone else is doing their fair share too, in order to ensure that we kind of do enough to mitigate the threat of climate change. And for a lot of firms, that would require pretty radically transforming the way that they do business and the way that their key decision makers go about reasoning about how operations are going to be structured and what priorities are going to be. Um, This is just necessary if we're going to successfully deal with the threat. So there is also the uh, argument that climate imperative and and profit maximizing are compatible. How do you look at that? Yeah. So this is kind of what I was uh, talking about a little bit before. Um, So, some people suggest, not always, you know, all that explicitly, but, you know, they seem to kind of have in mind that firms don't really have to give up much, if anything, in the way of profits in order to kind of do their part when it comes to dealing with climate change. You know, people talk about, you know, opportunities to kind of shift business models in ways that will, you know, be even more profitable in the future. Uh, but, there's a degree of optimism that comes out of some quarters that seems to me um, at the very least exaggerated. You know, the idea that 
the world is just so convenient for everyone in the business world that you know doing what's kind of maximally good from the perspective of profit making will just always be consistent with you know, kind of doing their part from a moral perspective uh, to kind of address the threat of climate change. This seems so improbable that um, there's just no good reason to believe it, right? I mean, there's no evidence that tends to be kind of presented for this. It's generally kind of highly speculative. Of course, there's something appealing about this kind of optimism. It would be great if the world were were like this. And, you know, sometimes uh, there are these kind of fortunate uh, situations where there aren't kind of serious trade-offs that have to be made between competing priorities. But, you know, the world isn't always like that. Um, you know, one of the obvious examples to point to, of course, is oil companies, right? uh, you know, companies that are in the fossil fuel extraction business. Um, if you kind of look at their plans, right, I mean, there were some articles uh, uh, that got some attention back in, I think, 2019, 2020, that um, highlighted that uh, a number of the major global fossil fuel firms uh, are planning increased extraction uh, up through about 2030 or the early 2030s. Uh, that's their current business plan. And so uh, those who think that there's no conflict between profit maximizing and the climate imperative have to either think that uh, you know, the decision makers at these firms are just really bad business people. They're really bad at, you know, pursuing profits in the best possible way. They're just making a kind of deep mistake about what's going to be, you know, best in terms of profits for their firms, because that's, you know, surely that's kind of what's driving these these decisions. That, you know, But in fact, you know, if, if the optimists are right, uh, these firms would do better by, you know, planning to reduce extraction and move in different directions. But, you know, that just seems like, it's unlikely to be true, right? Uh, the people who are making these decisions are well-informed. They kind of know what they're doing. They're competent business people. Um, from my perspective, they're just making decisions that are ethically problematic, right? Uh, they're not kind of taking the, the moral importance of dealing with the climate threat sufficiently seriously, uh, but they probably are doing what's best in terms of profits for, uh, for their firms. Right. And that hence brings us to the topic of greenwashing, uh, which is uh, a, a term that, you know, comes up quite often these days. And, you know, basically the philosophy of a company saying one thing and doing another, basically looking out for the profits and maybe not necessarily looking out for what they said that they were going to do. And I guess the question is, how prevalent do you think that is these days and how much impact is it having on the overall discussion around climate right now to begin with? Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, uh, you know, I think it's fairly common. There is, I think, increasing pressure on firms to say the right things uh, about you know, their commitments on climate and kind of environmental issues more broadly. Um, unfortunately, for kind of reasons having to do with information that ordinary individuals can kind of uh, realistically kind of uh, process and so on. Um, there's less pressure on firms to actually do all of the good things that they might be claiming to do. It's often possible for firms to kind of engage in, you know, rhetoric that makes it kind of sound like they have all these really good commitments without doing nearly as much as the rhetoric suggests they're doing. Uh, and given that, you know, there's still a kind of dominant practice in 
business decision making of aiming again primarily if not exclusively at maximizing profits within constraints like the law it's not surprising that uh it's fairly common for firms to kind of exaggerate uh how much good they're doing uh for you know climate or or kind of other uh you know other important purposes you know in large part as a kind of marketing tool right uh, given that a lot of people do care about these issues. So then what do you think needs to change at this point, playing off of the mindset that, as you alluded to before, that you know change needs to occur, and it needs to occur in a fairly quick fashion in order to be able to meet some of the targets that, uh, that uh, experts have talked about. What needs to change either from a corporate or a public perspective uh, angle in order to make the change and, and get to the right uh, to the right level uh, of dealing with this issue. Yeah, I mean, quite a few things need to change. Uh, I mean, we're in a situation where we need to uh, accomplish a great deal uh, in a short period of time and make pretty significant changes to you know the way that businesses do things, the way that kind of we as individuals do things in our in our personal lives, and and so on. So, I mean, there are kind of multiple dimensions to. Uh, kind of what needs to to happen. So, you know, as uh, Eric Gortz and I have argued, uh, one of the things that needs to happen is that uh, the norms for business decision making uh, need to change in some pretty significant ways. Uh, you know, corporate executives and, and kind of others who have have impacts on on the way that businesses operate need to be taking the threat of climate change much more directly into account than they have been for, for a long time uh, in deciding um, you know, what, what the policies of, of their organizations are going to look like, what practices they're going to adopt, and, and things like this. Um, and sometimes they're going to have to um, make choices that involve sacrificing at least some degree of profitability for the sake of um, making a greater contribution to dealing with climate change. Uh, the other side of that is um, we all as consumers need to change the way that we think about kind of how we interact with, with firms, uh, what kinds of purchasing decisions we make. Um, you know, ultimately dealing with the threat of climate change is going to require, um, I think, some fairly significant cultural changes, right? People need to be willing to um, make some choices uh, about how they kind of live their own lives that are different from the ones that, uh, that we're used to making. So we need to buy less stuff that's climate, that's uh, yeah, emissions intensive to produce. Uh, you know, we need to be willing to, you know, kind of, uh, take public transit when it's available rather than driving everywhere. Uh, it'd be good if people lived in, uh, you know, smaller homes that, uh, you know, use less energy to heat and cool and, uh, you know, things like this. Um, I mentioned earlier adopting a, a vegan or at least a vegetarian diet, um, you know, is one way of uh, reducing one's kind of personal uh, contributions to greenhouse gas emissions, morally good for other reasons too. Uh, so there are all kinds of things like this. And of course, choices at the different levels impact each other, right? Uh, the more consumer behavior changes uh, in the directions that I'm describing, the more that firms will have to um, change their business practices to kind of cater to the changing consumer preferences, right? So, you know, um, if 
a lot of people start adopting a vegan diet, right? That's going to require companies that are producing you know, meat and dairy uh, to produce less and maybe move into producing uh, different kinds of options that are less carbon intensive. Uh, you know, and the same goes for uh, you know, kind of other areas in which we might change our choices as as individuals. So, can you look out then five years, ten years, and think about where you think we need to be at that point? Uh, and I, I would say it's not even hoping, but but you know, wanting to see significant change and and where we might be on a lot of these issues in the next decade or so. Yeah. You know, it's hard to kind of paint a detailed picture in our minds of kind of what the world would have to look like if we're going to kind of actually succeed in, in dealing with the threat. You know, one of the sources of some optimism is that, uh, you know, younger people seem to care about this issue a great deal. Uh, that's not surprising. Uh, they're going to be around a lot longer than uh, than people who are are a bit older, and uh, you know are going to have to live through some of the, you know, the really kind of troubling effects that you know we're already starting to see um, now. So, certain kinds of policy changes that have been resisted for a long time uh, might be possible um, as. Uh, you know, more and more younger people are involved in the political process. Uh, and, you know, frankly, as uh, kind of more members of older generations uh, are no longer around to, uh, to vote. Uh, but, you know, there's some concern about that, too, because uh, there are kind of structural incentives in the climate change case uh, to always kind of put off action a little bit longer and a little bit longer and a little bit longer, right? Because when we actually do start doing more, uh, you know, in a serious way to kind of address the threat, then at least if I'm right, uh, you know, that's likely to involve some genuine sacrifices uh, for, you know, people who are around when we start making those changes. Uh, and it's always kind of easy to say, well, you know, a little bit longer won't hurt, a little bit longer won't hurt. Right? Uh, there's some kind of interesting uh, philosophical papers that kind of highlight in, in detail kind of why this structure um, makes dealing with a problem like climate change so challenging. It's unlike most of the other problems that we faced in society and kind of globally throughout history. Thank you for listening to The Ripple Effect. We hope you found this episode informative and engaging. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review so that we can continue to bring you the best insight from the Wharton School. 